Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I hope you're all uh, healthy and safe on this uh, April 28th. Um, welcome to another edition of Conversations with Educators on the COVID-19 Frontline. Today, my guest will be Dr. Michael uh, Salvatore from the Long Branch School District. I'll introduce him in a little bit. If you want to pass a question on or a comment on to Dr. Salvatore, you can just type it in the chat room. Uh, to enter the chat room, uh, you go online and you'll have to register with Blog Talk Radio. There is no fee for that, but you can you have to work your way through that. Or you can dial 1-347-989-8904 and press number 1, and that will indicate to our Robin, who's manning our switchboard, that you have a question. Uh, these conversations have basically been with uh, the superintendents of school districts trying to lead their uh, students and staff through a very difficult time. Uh, as I said before, I have uh, Michael Salvatore from the Long Branch School District. Welcome, Mike. How are you? Oh, it's good to be here. It's good to be talking about this very important topic. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, first of all, for those who may be in other parts of New Jersey, just give us a brief synopsis of uh, the district of Long Branch. Sure. I think you have kind of two scenarios here. You have the community of Long Branch and then the school district. Uh, the community of Long Branch is uh, it's quaint. It's about a five and a half square mile uh, right on the eastern seaboard in central Jersey. Uh, the school district is about it's mid-size urban uh, categorized, and it's about 6,000 students, pre-K to uh, adult education, and we um, we have about 85% of children and families uh, live in uh, high poverty, uh, which doesn't isn't reflected actually of, uh, completely in our community. The community has kind of the inverse. Uh, in terms of affluence, we have a, a very affluent uh, seaboard uh, in terms of along our coast. We have an affluent uh, sections in our community, but our school is predominantly uh, high, highly impoverished uh, families and children. And um, we've been, we're one of those old districts. We've been in existence since the uh, the late 1800s. Uh, so we've been been around quite, quite some time. So um, the education world, well, the entire world, but we'll focus on education, kind of turned upside down in, in uh, mid-March. Uh, what were, when you first saw this coming, what were some of the actions that you took to help prepare your district? Well, just as I just did now, I took a deep breath because I think it was <laughs> a time that we we all needed some real clarity and we had to, we really had to tackle this with a, just a clear head and a clear conscience because it was something none of us have ever seen before and to enter into a, a world of um, no brick and mortar so abruptly i i think we really i paused i really said you know what is what is going to be my biggest concern here and then uh i went back and just as many people do to combat anxiety uh, and stress I, I went back and started planning because I, it made me feel better and i i went back and started planning with other people and the first thing was what are what are our biggest needs, you know, and then how are we going to communicate those things to our, to our full community, uh, knowing that we have a uh, language barrier, knowing that we have the access gap and, and so many other obstacles in, in, in the, in the way. Yeah. I mean, I know your district, uh, let's just talk about the virtual learning. I know your district tried to do a, was doing a lot with professional development with teachers and other things, 
But what about your students? Uh, did you, how many of them had the, uh, the internet connection at home or the, uh, a laptop or any other device at home? So uh, we we actually looked at that right away because we had a survey uh, done last spring and it came back about 67% of our kids had um, a device at home with internet access and it was unspecified in terms of the quality of their their access. So we knew right away we had at least a third of our families that were not going to be connected. So uh, roughly about 1,900. Uh, families uh, or students weren't weren't connected, uh, so we were we were concerned about that right off the bat because we knew not only did they not have a device at home, but they w- we wouldn't be able to communicate with them in terms of content. And so, how did you uh, try to get those devices to to them, or how did you uh, do the lessons after that? Well, so we 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 crawled with this process. I know some people rushed and and went into uh, went into a contract with particular vendors. And we we initially went out. We we gave children access to online content that we were curating each day. Uh, and, but we also uh, initially sent home packets of learning because we only really anticipated being out for two weeks. And uh, right now it sounds so ignorant to even admit that, but we really thought. We were very optimistic and said, okay, let's let this blow over in a couple of weeks. And then the more information we received, I mean, look at where we are now in terms of masks and curfews and waiting online to a food store. You know, we, we didn't really foresee this a month ago. So uh, we gave out learning packets. But in that two weeks' time when we knew that learning packet was about to expire, we were fully engaged in trying to vet out different vendors to provide us with not only access to each home, but also with a particular device. So in doing so, we went back and we had each of our teachers, um, and I'll tell you, the teachers were on the front line with this uh, and the admin, they, they uh, our instructional assistants as well. They, they were reaching out to families through so many different apps that we have now. Nowadays, we have apps that translate languages. We have apps that keep people connected that allow a teacher to put out a message or a lesson at the touch of her finger or his finger. But we uh, were able to communicate with parents to find out real-time data of who actually had access and who had a deficiency of devices. We used that data over the two-week period, uh, and then we engaged in a contract with a particular vendor to make sure we have um, hotspots in homes and also devices. So we wind up uh, finalizing a deal with a a 7-inch mobile tablet that could be used for primary-age kids, or high school age kids, but it works best with primary ages when they're really just accessing content. And then that could be used as a mobile hotspot for uh, children with their Chromebooks. And fortunately, in the schools, we, we, we do have great amount of technology. We've got a one-to-one initiative from third all the way through high school. Uh, so we had plenty of devices to deploy, and we were slow on doing that because the kids didn't have access. But what we did, we... We engaged uh, with the vendor. We have 12 months internet access, 5G, that can be tethered into this 7-inch tablet. So you could have multiple kids on with Chromebooks in the house, and you can have the the younger child potentially on the tablet, all learning, all connected to their teachers, to school, whether it be synchronously or asynchronously. So, uh, and that t- that took about two and a half weeks. From March 13th, and uh, we afforded about a thousand families internet access for one year. Wow, 
Wow. Uh, yeah, so yeah, no, how it was it, featured. That's amazing. Uh, how did you commu- How did the teachers and the, the administrators, you know, everyone was like, okay, did, not just you. I think we were all a little thinking that we'd come back relatively soon. Uh, and now I'm not even sure we'll be back for this school year. But um, mm-hmm. how did the teachers react to their having to change in your building administrators to changing their uh, instructional methods? literally overnight you know thankfully i think we we weren't preparing for this but we we knew that education has been changing uh, whether it be through our future ready schools initiative or other personalized paths to learning we we we've observed this uh this this kind of uh, dependence upon uh, a learning management system uh, so for us we use google classroom but it actually forces many teachers, particularly in our upper grades, 3 to 12, to, to kind of have a place to keep all of their content. So it wasn't just pulling up a PowerPoint for the day. It was that they had plenty of content already listed in their classroom. So when children were home, it, it was natural for them to connect through their learning management system, which they do in class. They have an ID. They have a password. They connect to their very specific teacher. That felt pretty familiar and comfortable once they had access. Remember, without access – it was uncomfortable and familiar. Right. But I'll tell you, the, the teachers yeah. were I, – I, I actually saw um, – and, and I, I've heard before, when there is, an oppor- when there, there is a, a pandemic or something terrible happens, there is opportunity that lies within that. And for, for many teachers and children, we, we also saw some innovation come from this. I, I mean, so, some of the connectedness our teachers have had with content and connecting kids to content has been extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example would be just the, the reliance and heavy use of social media uh, in a very public way. I mean, you have teachers that want to kind of, uh, kind of close the door in their classroom, and uh, they had a little magic going on in there. But now, through the use of social media, it's all on display. I, I actually was logging in, watching a, a, a preschool teacher in my district uh, do a, a story read with her class and ask questions and interact on Instagram Live. I watched, uh, you know, uh, my principal from my early childhood does nighttime stories at 7 o'clock every night on Facebook Live so parents and children can log in. Uh, we've had our dance classes are fully online. Our kids are dancing in their home and connecting to their dance instructor. Uh, so every content area, I've seen I've seen a, a brink of a spark of innovation at every level. I actually saw people create websites overnight to, to curate the content for early childhood uh, centers where they were identifying um, teachers to take on different components of the lesson and then updating it weekly. Our middle school has a full on-site with, with, with content fully structured in a calendar so parents can easily navigate to the, through the child's day. I mean, at every level, I've seen a spark of innovation that that I'm I'm really proud of, and I think the teachers are certainly proud that they are putting themselves out there in a way that's very public. Uh, but our families are really embracing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know your district was a little ahead of the game with the future ready, and uh, obviously it wasn't for the pandemic, but you were just doing it because it was good instruction. Uh, with the technology. Now, one of the, you know, we talked before, you have a high free and reduced uh, lunch. How did you handle the meals? 
Uh, the, actually, the meals were one of our top priorities. I, I mean, so our top priority uh, was our, our students who have um, identified mental health concerns. That was like the number one thing we began planning for. How do we give them access to therapists and counselors and so forth? The second piece uh, was a need in terms of physiological need and making sure everybody was fed. So we worked with our food service provider, uh, Sodexo and Noel Maroon, and they were awesome. I mean, we, we met... I think the Thursday before everybody went out, uh, we had a, a full plan. And when I say we, she had an amazing plan. And the plan was uh, certainly very difficult because we initially planned to have 11,000 meals ready per day. Uh, so you wanted breakfast and lunch for over 5,000, 5,500 students. So uh, that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and she had a, a great plan. We identified six feeding sites, and then we started with – identifying uh, where all of our homeless students were being sheltered or located at the time. And we were, deli- we're deli- we still are, we're delivering meals to those facilities to make sure our, our children have, you know, adequate nutrition for the day, for the week, for the weekend. Uh, we, I mean, pretty soon we're going to be serving weekend meals too. So we, we have these identified sites and the families come out, some walk up uh, where it's a grab and go and others, it's like a drive through. It's like the, probably the biggest McDonald's drive-thru you've ever seen in your life. Uh, <laughs> it wraps around our middle school all the way out. And at that one location in our middle school, we have uh, probably about 2,000 meals served daily. And and a lot of wow. our parents just pulling up and, uh, you know, they place the meal right on the on the table and somebody comes out and grabs uh, the car, they grab the bag, they bring it to the car, and the next one's up. Uh, so we've been doing this through, throughout our city now for, for weeks and we plan on doing it right through the summer. We plan on not stopping. Uh, so we're, we plan on continuing on the weekends because we know many of our families are some of the people in the statistic of what, 200,000 people applied for unemployment, in New Jersey or something. It's, you know, mm-hmm. those are some of our families, many of our families. So we're making sure that, you know, you don't have to worry about these meals. And I will say parents have reached out and expressed their gratitude for that. Uh, one parent who said uh, the, the family of contractors, and she said, you know, I don't know how we would have gotten by if we didn't have to worry about two meals per day for everybody in the house. And she has four school-aged children. So I wow. mean, it really does make a difference. When the governor came out and said, hey, listen, we're, we're going to allow you to go remote, but you've got to have a plan for feeding, he was right. We, we you know, and, and since we focused on that, I think we're doing it relatively well. And we've had such – um, partnerships with different organizations, in, not just um, locally, but we've had uh, the, that group Fulfill New Jersey. They've uh, they've organized to bring us hundreds of meals. So we'll be doing our meal distribution, and a truck pulls up with 200 meals, and it doesn't make anybody happier than to have a swap off of, hey, do I get a turkey sandwich today, or can I get a burgers and fries? So, so uh, whenever a fulfilled New Jersey truck pulls up, everybody gets pretty excited. We had Domino's Pizza locally came out, donated a couple hundred pizzas that we gave uh, one pie per family to, in addition to the lunches too, because we want to make sure if, uh, that they're they're taking that food home. Mm. Um, as we proceed with this uh, closure and the virtual learning and all, what are some of the concerns that you have as we move forward? The challenges that you see. Well, my biggest concern moving forward. I mean, I, I want people back. I think everybody wants to be back. Everybody wants to be back to their normal procedure routine. And there's no substitute 
for a face-to-face -face interaction in terms of a learning experience. Uh, so we, we can try to mask it. We can provide it virtually. But there's really no substitute to that face-to-face -face, uh, experience. So, uh, you know, I am concerned that if when we do come back, uh, what will the social distancing uh, procedures be in place at that time? And, and how do I navigate that so that our kids and our staff are safe? That that. That's like my, my number one concern, that if I were to bring 1,600 kids back to my high school and I have 500 kids in a lunch shift, how do I create an environment to keep kids safe in that? And, uh, you know, we will. There's no doubt about it. Whatever the procedures are, we're going to abide by and we'll make sure we're very creative in finding a solution to that. I'm just saying the solution's not at my fingertips yet, but it's not to say we're not going to keep thinking and planning and trying new things. Uh, was there, I mean, you mentioned a couple of them. Uh, did any of the staff members, and you, and you kind of did allude to this, but, but were there any other times that a staff member came up with an idea, whether it's a principal or administrator or a teacher, that you said, that is so, uh, I wish I would have thought of that. Was there any uh, positive, I mean, I know you've already said there were a few. Are there any other positive things that you, that came out of this that maybe you haven't mentioned? Uh, sure. I think every day, every day, and, and the ideas that are, are generated uh, for our district, they're a result of, I, I mean, I, I'm putting it out there, but they're a result of uh, just constant communication and collaboration from everybody. So whether our custodian uh, comes up with a, a better plan for meal distribution, which is what occurred at a couple of our sites, or whether our secretary had a better plan for communicating with parents, uh, our instructional assistance on, on how to navigate a remote environment uh, with children with special needs. I mean, we've had countless suggestions from our staff, no matter what field they're in, that have improved our overall system. In fact, our initial plan that we submitted to the Department of Ed, I think it was like a 16-page plan. It is like 45 pages now because we keep adding mm. things in that we missed along the way so that we – and we're putting – we're documenting this so that we're better prepared in the event there's another wave of this or we see something else 10 years or 20 years down the line. You know, you mentioned something. I meant to ask you that earlier. Uh, how did you communicate, and how did your staff communicate with the parents in this in the community? Uh, so there's a couple ways to do it. Typically, I will, uh, from my office, I try to give a weekly update that goes out. And what we've we're using uh, platforms that have translation features built in. So we'll use Facebook Live. Well, we did a live broadcast from my office last Friday night, and uh, Facebook allows that translation from a closed caption. We're using YouTube, too, because YouTube allows you to have uh, an auto-translate feature to 50-plus uh, languages. So we're trying to use platforms that allow for automatic translation. So the everyday communication between teachers, they use apps like Remind or Class Dojo, which have translation features in those as well. So, I mean, that's the priority, making sure that we have these uh, platforms available that allow for all of the content to be translated. Our entire website, and most websites too, this is not exclusive to us, most websites have a translation feature where they can simply just click a drop-down box and select the language of their choice. So we, we've been using all of those mediums to put information out and making sure people are connected to the content. And then we also track the analytics to see, did that was that message favorable? Did people like it? Did did it uh, have a far reach? Uh, so we're, we're using all the sub-features connected to each platform to make sure we're driving it home, whatever message is important to our community. Okay. 
Uh, we're coming to the cl- cl- end of this uh, po- sh- short podcast. I'd like to thank you, Mike. Any other comments that you would like to make as you before we close? Well, I, I think uh, all of us have been saluting the work that's been uh, occurring in our hospitals, and you know we certainly wanted to be part of that early on by donating. I think we donated like over 200 goggles to Monmouth Medical Center, and but that's just a small part of it. I think we were all trying to take our hat off to the people who are coming in every day in our hospitals, and, but I also want to extend that to people who are newly defined as essential workers. In the past, we've always had custodians, maintenance workers, and grounds, uh, and certainly administration identified as essential workers. But now our food service workers are, are really on front lines. They're working you know, in a certain distance from each other to prepare food for children and families who really need it. So they certainly deserve a shout out because they're they're coming in every day with smiles on their face. They're greeting our families and their community from a distance. And I, I think there's just a lot of love around this process right now. Although everybody wants to get back to some normalcy, there's certainly just a, a heartwarming feeling that's occurring uh, despite the, the craziness that we're in. Yep, uh, I would concur with that. Uh, I'd like to thank my, Dr. Michael Salvatore from the City of Long Branch School District uh, for joining me. Uh, Mike, good luck with everything as you move forward in this, whether we open in June or September. Uh, I know you'll be out there working hard for your uh, – and your staff will be working hard for your students of uh, Long Branch. Uh, so uh, thank you. Well, thanks, Ray. Thanks for having me, and, and good luck with everything with the New Jersey School Board Association. They've been great, a great voice for, for children in New Jersey, uh, so we certainly appreciate you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And I hope everyone has a, a good uh, afternoon and a, a safe and healthy uh, afternoon. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you. All right, thank you. Bye-bye.